Good morning. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The focus of our message is from the reading that we heard in St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And I begin with a story. We're going to try to figure out and hear this wisdom of God that he spoke so significantly about in that passage. Megan, 19, wants to stand out and be the person, but she perceives herself to be falling short. The problem began in high school. She attended an elite academy where she began to feel like I was mediocre or below average, she says. Earlier, at a regular school, she was the smartest person in the class, had been on the gifted and talented track since the fifth grade. And this heady recognition made her feel special. But then came the academy, where she was surrounded by very bright, high-achieving kids. She began to feel marginalized and yearned to feel special again. And these feelings carried over into college. Although she was now a scholarship student at a first-rate university, Megan is frustrated and despairing of herself. She explains that she's attending her safety school and that she wants to show that I should be somewhere better by acing all of my classes and being president of 40 organizations. But she adds, that's not really happening. I am, if anything, a mediocre student, and that just makes me so angry at the world and then at me for not being the person. Although she wants to impress someone, she says, I end up being impressively unimpressive, and that crushes me. You have heard it said, and perhaps you've said it yourself, follow your heart, find your passion, march to the beat of your own drummer, be true to yourself, you do you. Yet this, this is the wisdom of the world, and as we just heard, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Alternatively, the Spirit of God says, through the prophet Jeremiah, the heart is sick beyond all things. It's ill, deceitful, desperately sick. Who can understand it? But I say unto you, anyone who wants to truly find oneself has to lose oneself. To truly live, one has to lay down their life. Our passage for today focuses on wisdom, specifically Jesus as the wisdom of God, the good news of the gospel as foolishness to our worldly imaginations. I used to teach at a university, and people like Megan resembled many of my students. She'd been brought up to believe that everything would go right if she just followed her heart and stayed true to herself. Many people in her life said those things to her over and over again, parents, teachers, mentors, coaches, all with the best of intentions. She even heard such so-called wisdom in commencement speeches for every milestone celebrated since graduating from kindergarten. Commencements, as we all know, are beginnings, and speeches are given as a form of send-off, with words of wisdom offered to those as they start a new season in their lives. What kind of wisdom the Spirit of God offer if He were a speaker 
at a commencement ceremony. Many of us have been influenced, as Megan has, with the now cliched phrases that focus us inward to consult our hearts for truth and wisdom. As we move from our days, our times being students, into the long and changing seasons of adulthood, we experience changing responsibilities, work, bills, eventually things like a marriage, a family to care for, investments, retirement, and finally concern for legacies. And as we move into these new experiences and they take shape in our life, we wonder about what we've been taught. It seems that all the advice to look inside oneself and follow one's heart doesn't actually tell a person how to live very well. So while all those cliches sounded lovely, and they seemed to offer a lot of freedom and opportunity, they didn't offer much real guidance. In particular, they don't say much about what a human life should look like or what it's for. In other words, we've all been encouraged to embrace our unique individuality. And while we were taught that, we were also taught very poorly about how to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, or what something of that sort would even look like. The wisdom of the Spirit tells us to look elsewhere than inside of our own selves, for the truth about our own selves, for the direction of our lives, or what we should do at any given moment. He prompts us to look to the one who created us, who gives to us an identity, and calls us to be a part of his grand story of redeeming the world and helping us, helping his creation to flourish. Later in the same letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul writes this, let each of you lead the life that God has assigned, to which he has called you. The great scholar of human suffering, Viktor Frankl, had a life-changing experience not long after he began his career as a psychologist. He was a Jew living in the time when the Nazi regime rose to power in Germany and began to systematically eliminate all the Jews of Europe. He was interred at a concentration camp and watched many of his own people give up or take their own lives before the Nazis could do it for them in the gas chambers. But he noticed, however, that those who survived were those who seemed to have something to live for. And that something was usually someone or some task which they could not bear to abandon. Frankel himself was one of these people. And as he reflected later on his experience, Frankel said that he had not imagined his own life taking the path that it did. It's not what he asked for, nor what he intended. Becoming a scholar of suffering was nowhere on his radar prior to his time in the concentration camp. But he said, it became something upon which I could not turn my back. And he concluded that we ought to seek not what we can get out of life, but what life needs from us. It isn't, what do I want? But what does life want from me? We might call this kind of wisdom the wisdom of the Spirit, which is crooked, since it's not what we tend to expect. It doesn't go in a straight line. It doesn't offer a linear step-by-step -step process for solving some problem or achieving some solution. It often doesn't make much sense. It certainly doesn't look attractive. It's foolish, 
and St. Paul's words. It's the opposite of the supposed wisdom we tell ourselves and our children in commencement addresses and throughout much of life. We see the strangeness of the Spirit's wisdom in the life of Jesus. There, everything is utterly not what we would expect. God's ways, as communicated by the Spirit's wisdom and embodied in Jesus' life, are definitely not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He brings us to life through the death of His Son. The redemption of those of us who are imperfect and weak is brought about by the sacrifice of the perfect and the pristine. The logic here is kingdom logic. It's inverse. It's upside down. It's the opposite of what we expect. To find yourself, you have to lose yourself. Your life is not yours to create. But as St. Paul wrote in his letter to the Philippians, it has been bought with a price. You are not your own. Your life was given by God when you were created in the womb. Your redemption was purchased by Jesus when he died for your sins on the cross and was later raised to life again in the resurrection. You've been engrafted into the community called the body of Christ, branches of the one true vine. Your true and authentic life is hidden here in Christ, and discovering it is built into the journey of Christian discipleship and being led by the Spirit as you live together in this community, serving the world through all of your various and multiple callings. These are not the things we hear in commencement speeches. Let's go back to Megan's story. At the end, she articulated the feeling that she needed to be impressive. But in her words, she was impressively unimpressive. There's something even more insidious, hidden in the supposed wisdom of the world that we hear in commencement speeches. They subtly encourage you to believe that you will be loved if you are successful if you achieve much, if you gain significant attention by your accomplishments, experiences, wealth, and the things that you own. We've not so much heard these things said as we've been immersed in a world that lives by these rules in a taken-for-granted sort of way. Perhaps you've seen a commercial by the beer brand Dos Equis which stars the imaginary character, the most interesting man in the world. Everyone wants to be him, and it just so happens that on the rare occasion that he drinks beer, he only drinks Dos Equis. The marketing is brilliant, because the primary message of all of these commercials has very little to do with the beer. Rather, the deeper message of the commercials has everything to do with the world in which we live. The world where we interact with others. It has nothing to do with the world, excuse me, it has to do with the world in which we try to distinguish ourselves from others in ways that make us appear unique or stand out, like Megan. (laughs) One of the primary ways that we do this is through how we appear to others. But it's more than just standing out as unique as a product or a person. The commercials featuring the most interesting man in the world also contain a refrain that we hear 
on the invisible airwaves of our culture in which we live. It's a rule. It's a command. It's an imperative. To be someone, to be unique, to be lovable, to be affirmable, you must be interesting. Now, to be interesting is to garner attention of a certain kind. Interest generates a response in others. They look at us, and they find us attractive or desirable in some way, and therefore acceptable and affirmable. It's almost as if we're not fully human. We're not worthy of life itself until we are interesting. The late writer David Foster Wallace calls it being watchable. Are we entertaining? Are we impressive? Are we worth looking at? Are our experiences and possessions interesting and enviable? Now, there's a pressure that comes with this imperative to be interesting. It functions like a tyrant. We cannot get out from underneath its domination. And most of the time, <coughs> excuse me, most of the time we don't want to. We simply go along with it, taking for granted that this is just the way that things are. Yet all this performing for others, these efforts, these endeavors to be interesting, become very exhausting. We're often beleaguered by the constant pressure to appear interesting, watchable, worthy even. And furthermore, we're constantly comparing our lives to others to see if we're as happy as they are for having the same kind of amazing experiences as they are, if we're wearing the right clothes, driving the right cars, eating at the right places, hashtagging the right causes, and on and on. And this comparison makes us sad. For some of us, it makes us depressed. For a few of us, it makes us question whether our lives are worthy at all. What if all of our efforts to make ourselves appear acceptable before other humans is in fact an effort to find a replacement for a deeper spiritual problem, one that we're all trying to solve? Do we use whatever evidence we can muster of our wide social acceptability as some kind of leverage before God himself, suggesting that since humans find us acceptable, how can you think otherwise, God? What we're after here is trying to deal with a deeper fear. We wonder if we are lovable. But even more, we wonder if we are, in fact, actually loved. It's a fear that returns us to the garden, where we realize that there are things about ourselves that we don't like but cannot fix. We're a problem to ourselves. And in the garden, we thought we needed to cover all this up. We were naked, and we thought no one would love us if they knew who we really were, what we actually think, what we've really done. We even try to hide from God. So all this work to become interesting and affirmable is just an effort to cover ourselves and hide. Am I lovable, we ask? Do you love me? Will you love me if you knew this about me? How can you love me, God, even when I haven't loved you? 
If the Holy Spirit were a commencement speaker, trying to confer to us the truest truth of all wisdom, he would turn all of this upside down. Listen to what he would say, because he says it to you now. He would say to you that you don't have to work so hard. I know it's exhausting. He would tell us about the hound of heaven. The hound of heaven who chases you down like a lovesick dog that's lost its owner. Only to tackle us finally in the embrace of an unconditional, joy-filled love from a heart that's overflowing. Because what was lost has finally been found. He would tell us of this inverse and upside-down logic of being a child in the kingdom and say this to you, my child, my child, there is nothing more to do. You were loved before you ever knew it. You have been loved since before the moment of your creation. There's no more pressure in my kingdom to earn my love. There are no you-have-tos or you-musts. So let go. Let go of these efforts to find yourself acceptable, affirmable, lovable. In my kingdom, there's only freedom and rest from all of these things. In Christ, everything that is needed has already been done. He said it himself. It is finished. And so that same Christ, through the Spirit, says to you, You were loved and accepted by the very creator of all things. He is the one who gives you that next breath you breathe right now, that next heartbeat that you feel in your own chest. He's the one who knit you together and knows all the hairs on your head, who loved you before you knew what love is. He has become the wisdom of God for us as our very redeemer. And it's in this wisdom that we boast. All of this is a new beginning for you, a commencement. And so as we disperse into the world this morning, let us live by the inverse logic of the kingdom, the wisdom of the Spirit of God as it's been revealed in Christ, and then trust in Him for these promises. For this wisdom is indeed wisdom for life, And it will carry us through every moment and into eternity. God grants this to us because of Jesus. Amen.